Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. This is your host, Lindsay Taylor, and I'm really happy to be bringing you today a conversation I just wrapped up with Simon Marshall. Simon, along with his wife, Leslie Patterson, are the force behind BraveheartCoaching.com and the authors of a recent and really fantastic book called The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion, which, as you can probably tell from the title, is delightfully irreverent, but also just an incredibly helpful and practical guide for getting your head on straight as an athlete and tackling the gremlins, in their words, that threaten to derail you along the path to becoming the athlete you want to be. Before I turn you over to our conversation with Simon, I just want to tell you a little bit about his background and how he came to be here. So Simon is a former professor of family and preventative medicine at the University of California, San Diego, and professor of exercise science at San Diego State University. While there, he amassed a really impressive resume of over 100 scientific articles that have been cited over 10,000 times in the scientific literature. He's also served as an invited expert on exercise science for the NIH, the CDC, and the American Cancer Society. Right now, in addition to running Braveheart Coaching with Leslie, he is the performance psychologist for BMC Racing Team, which is an elite world tour professional cycling team. And he's also recently joined the team over at Nourish Balance Thrive as their exercise performance expert. And as you might know from listening to our podcast before, we're big fans of what they're doing over at Nourish Balance Thrive. If you aren't familiar with them, go back and listen to our recent interviews, mine and Brad's, with Chris Kelly, Megan Roberts, and Dr. Tommy Wood. So it's a really incredible team they've amassed over there, and now Simon has joined forces with them. He also likes to describe himself as the Sherpa husband of his wife, Leslie, who's a professional triathlete, a professional mountain biker, an Ironman champion, and an endurance coach herself. But also, Simon has a lot of athlete cred to his own name as a very high-level cyclist. So between the two of them, they are quite the dynamic duo. I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with Simon today. I will put in the show notes links for how to reach him at Nourish Balance Thrive and to reach him and Leslie at Braveheart Coaching. And without further ado, let me introduce you to Simon. All right, Simon, thank you so much for taking time out of what must be a very busy day for you. You have like six or seven jobs now, according to your bio. <laughs> yeah, there's quite a few. I really appreciate you coming to talk to our audience today. And I would love for you just to start telling us a little bit more about not just what you're doing at Braveheart Coaching with Leslie, but kind of what made you, what were the needs that you saw that made you guys decide to strike out on your own and go for it? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Lindsay. It's really nice to speak to, uh, well, I know that you're a psychologist as well, so uh, let's not get too nerdy about the stuff that we talk about, <laughs> although that's, you know, that's fun. Um, no, yeah. all the jargon, <laughs> jargon all day. Well, I started off in uh, sports psychology, my PhD is in sport and exercise psychology and focused um, a little bit with athletes, but then uh, got a faculty position uh, in the US. I'm from England originally and got a faculty position here in sports psychology and then gra- moved into more public health. So using the same sorts of principles for, for people with chronic disease. So I was on the sort of academic uh, treadmill of research and teaching and grant writing and uh, publications and so on. And after sort of 14 or so years of that, um, 
was just getting burnt out by it. And uh, it was funny because I came, I used to come home and Leslie would say, you know, you're, you're in behavior change and all you do is moan about things you don't like, but you never change it. You don't see the irony. And this is obviously the, the, <laughs> pa- the paradox of self-help, right? We're great in other people's crises, but terrible in our own. And so, um, uh-huh. and, and so decided that uh, I wanted a change in, uh, in, in careers. And so I just jumped off the cliff um, with all of the anxiety and nerves that comes with that and started to help Leslie, who had been building a coaching business um, from sort of scratch uh, for the for the few years while I was still in faculty. And my background before my PhD was in sports science, and I'm a competitive cyclist and turned triathlete, forcibly so, from my wife. Uh, <laughs> but then, um, <laughs> so got into sort of doing a lot of the data analysis and then supporting some of the athletes' sort of psychological and emotional needs that didn't, that could be more uh, that were, I guess, more easily parlayed out of the traditional coaching relationship. And so we're talking to athletes a bit more. And then we, we really kind of got into our groove together and we found that we, what we were actually doing was like team coaching. Um, and sometimes it was kind of stereotypical with kind of good cop, bad cop, uh, type roles, but, but often it was, you know, one person dealing predominantly with physical training and the other person dealing with emotional and psychological training. And we try to make that process fairly seamless, but there's two of us. So, but we, we had some success with that. And then we decided to, you know, write, do a bit of a brain dump of our philosophy and why this is important and some of the things that work, particularly from the psychological and emotional side. And so we wrote it down. And uh, that's really that was the genesis of our book, The Brave Athlete. And so, um, yeah, it's now a really kind of fun way to I, I'm involved with mainly endurance sports, so cyclists and uh, triathletes and, and, and cyclists, uh, runners. But uh, but also to get back to some of my other roots in behavior change for people who are struggling with illness, uh, they either have to make dietary or physical activity changes in their life that are difficult. And how do you help people through that process? Um, so many of the concepts, sort of the stem cell co- skill concepts of, of sport, what I do in sports psychology, are very similar. Uh, um, but they kind of have a slightly different look and feel to them when you're working with people who are making changes and they might be a lot scarier than the typical athlete. Do you guys find that you see athletes that come to you a lot with what they think are just, you know, physical coaching motivation problems, and then you have to take them, you know, six steps backwards to the mindset? And <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's funny because, you know, when you, when you, I think my background in sports science and sport helps me a lot in psychology because, you know, there's this, there is a little bit of a, a stigma associated with um, psychology, uh, psychotherapy, and clinical psychology in particular when it comes to helping athletes, particularly if the, the psychologist hasn't been an athlete themselves. You know, when all you have is a, a hammer, everything becomes a nail, right? So everything is a psychological issue. Where, where it's really, you know, athletes coming to us who, and, and I'm, I'm using this as the opposite, they might come through and present as a psychological issue. You know, they just, they throw the towel in, they just, you know, they just can't push through difficult times in races or training. And then you learn that you learn about their nutrition and you figure, well, you know, (laughs) you're grossly uh, energy debt, you're in gross energy deficit and blah, blah, blah. So there are some things that it's not a psychological issue at all. It might be in the sense that why can't you change your your, uh, you know, your race nutrition and your, and your general dietary habits as an athlete, but they can be both. So what, what the issue presents as often is, is not necessarily what it turns out to be. And that, then that becomes the skill of asking quite the right questions and having a relationship with them. Yeah. And I know that you're working with the team at Nourish Balance Thrive now. 
And so listeners to our podcast know that I'm a huge fan of what you're doing there. So tell me, how do you fit into the team over there then? Yeah, so that was also a little bit serendipitous, actually, because Leslie Patterson, uh, my wife, who's a professional athlete, and she was a client of MBTs. She struggled. She has Lyme's disease and has had lots of gut health issues and started working with them uh, on a fairly regular basis with Chris and Tommy. And, and many of the stuff that much of the stuff that she was experiencing as well, um, there's a strong behavior change component to it. Right. And so when she spoke to them a little bit about what I did, oh, you know, did you know that my husband sort of does pit of this and that? And he's also in sports psychology. And I know many of your clients are athletes and it might be a useful uh, blah, blah, blah. So I started talking to them uh, and then they started sort of adding. Uh, I sort of became part of the team and they added me to uh, talk to their clients, not necessarily uh, 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 all new clients, but it's a bit like a kind of an, like an intake interview in a way. It's like, let me learn a little bit more about who you are as a person. We treat the, the head and the body. <laughs> and because that has a big role in understanding how someone adapts and responses to recommendations that they're given. So it became sort of the, the, the other piece of the puzzle uh, in terms of this holistic approach. Um, and so now I, I probably maybe uh, probably speak to about three or four clients a week, uh, some of which are ongoing, but many of which are just sort of one and done folks, you know, a little bit about what I do, how I can help and perhaps some insights. Um, but it's all in the spirit of what we call motivational interviewing. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this as a as a way of talking to people and sort of exploring ambivalence that people have towards change and so how can we really find ways for you to be your own best psychologist right not rely on somebody else to tell you what to do yeah i was i was think i've been thinking a lot about mindset lately i don't know if you know how much i'm doing over at our side but i work with our primal endurance community and also with our keto reset community so it's all about dietary and lifestyle change right on both parts and right yeah, I heard, um, I think it was, yeah, it must have been Chris talking to Dr. Brian Walsh and just about kind of the increasing awareness that they're giving, that Chris is giving to, to mindset as kind of this causal underlying factor that's not just about your goal pursuit, but also kind of about almost like a tipping point variable where you can, no matter what you do, your mindset can or cannot be like the last frontier just finding whether or not you're successful, right? I was kind of wondering what your thoughts are about that right now. Yeah. And I think that the mind the mindset um or headspace or whatever you want to call it, the mindset is 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 a critical piece. Now one one of the reasons I think it gets neglected is because it's a huge black box, right? We it's there's so many what we in science might say degrees of freedom. It's fuzzy, it's sort of it's it's very difficult to make sense of some of the psychological research to come up with good evidence based uh, um, strategies that work for most people most of the time. Um, and, and I think just in, and, and, you know, behavior change functional medicine world is no different than sport coaching in a way, in the sense of the role of psychology, we know it's important. Uh, we, we try and kind of do our best with the, with the Fisher price tools that we have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, we ultimately, we don't really get much training in it. Um, and we don't know what to do, uh, with things that people tell us, or we don't know how to act them. So I think it's a combination of training, uh, some experience, but also um, I think that just recognize if you come back to some core principles is that, you know, uh, the way that we experience the world is through thoughts and feelings. And yes, underlying all of that is biology. Uh, but you really have to get into some of the sort of the soft science or the the, the fuzzy world of how people's what, what 
makes people tick. And I think that alone as a sort of a core philosophy is important for health, for optimal performance in sport, in at work or in any in any domain of life, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, I think one of the reasons that people maybe resist working on the mindset piece is that it has like a, a strong air of 1980s self-help books, right? <laughs> and so, in fact, someone I told some people I was interviewing you for this um for this podcast about your book, which I guess we should probably mention more explicitly, is The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion, which is so well written. I I genuinely loved reading this book. So you guys did amazing. <laughs> and I've heard you say that it's like a first attempt. No, this is a great book. And by the way, I have the hard copy and the audio version of it. Oh, look at you. <laughs> I know, doubling down. I actually, I so I wanted to read it in the car and then remembered I can't read in the car. So I bought the audio version as well. And they're both great. I mean, I would actually, I loved listening to you and Leslie read it. You guys narrate it yourself. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that was a bit embarrassing, actually. Yeah, it was a funny story about that. But yeah, so there's a reason I think that they don't like authors reading their own material. And you think that it's going to be easy and you get in there and, and it sort of feels all quite sterile and stuff. And then you listen to yourself. It's like, I imagine actors when they see themselves on oh my God, I sound like that. Oh God, look, kind of someone at least put a firecracker up his ass to make him sound more enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fairness, I listened to it at two speed because yeah, yeah. don't we all yeah. now? So I didn't actually know what you truly sounded like okay, until today okay. because I also listened to all my podcasts at one and a half speed, which you can tell me if that's a terrible plan. But um, <laughs> no, it's great. But the hard copy is great, too, because you have so many really good exercises for people to read in here. Um, and to, I know you can get them on the PDF, but there's something just really nice about having them in front of you. But someone asked me, is this a self-help book? And my immediate response was no. And then I was like, well, <laughs> I guess, I guess this is a self-help book for athletes. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 yeah. So, I mean, self-help is, is such a, it's so awful, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I often, you know, a lot of the times that I, I've, I, I love thinking in metaphors and teaching in metaphors. That's limited for lots of reasons in science, but but metaphors are great because it's you know one of the helps us understand kind of complex things. And one metaphor that stuck with me, and it's certainly not my own, was that of this car mechanic. Right, is that you kind of can take your, your your car in when it makes a noise, and you take it to the to the garage, and it comes back, and the noise is gone, and you don't really know what they've done other than you've written a big check and stuff. So, so when you when you actually start teaching people how their engine works and you teach them to be their own mechanics, um, then you can start to not just, um, you know, solve, solve in, in air quotes uh, problems as they come up, but you can be a little bit more um, preemptive or, or, or uh, preventive in things that you know that you're going to be situations that you're going to be vulnerable and you can prepare for them ahead of time. So if that if that's self-help, then I suppose it is. Yes, it's trying to understand a little bit more about how we think and feel so that I don't have to struggle with things that uh, by learning some skills, I can alleviate that and I can be happier, more confident and enjoy life a bit more. Yeah, I think that for, you know, for people who haven't read the book yet, I felt like the book was kind of broken down into two parts. The first part being kind of get your head on straight right? Figure out who you are and why you're here. And then the second part being, you know, here are some major themes we see come up over and over. And here's some actionable steps you can take if this describes you, right? Right. And I'd right. really like to talk to you a little bit more about the first part about the getting your head on straight. Because as you mentioned, I'm a lapsed social psychologist and <laughs> this is the stuff that gets me ticking. So, um, you know, a lot of the first part, the early parts of the book are about becoming a brave athlete. So do you want to tell us, first of all, why you're calling it brave? And then also talk about, you know, 
when you see people who aren't brave, what does that look like? And then what does it look like when they become brave? Yeah. And I, I, we try to spell out uh, in the book as well, words like brave, you have be careful about what in the context, context matters, right? So we're not talking here about, you know, doing things that are truly brave in the sense that, you know, you're risking life and limb to help others or in some bigger cause or bigger service, but that, but that doing things that scare us um, takes a little miniature mini form of bravery. And those things that scare us can be uh, uh, very tiny to some people and very big to others. And so sport is a great environment to study that because at the end of the day, the consequences are, are never life-threatening or rarely are they life-threatening, extremely rarely. Um, and psychologically, the consequences of losing uh, don't really matter that much in the big scheme of things, even if you're making your living doing it. So in that sense, there's, there's a huge sort of uh, big comfort safety mattress at the bottom of the cliff that you're jumping to. Um, so the exercise becomes that, listen, there's really not much at stake here, but it's still terrifying. And bravery really is is based on the notion that you know if you expect to um to rid yourself of all negative emotion negative thinking before you decide to jump then you're probably going to be staying at the top for a very long time and one of the secrets or one of the insights i guess that comes from now some you know years of psychological research and in and in um, the psychotherapy literature is that we kind of go through life the best way to go through life is to go arm in arm with our fears that they're, they're part of us right we have these voices in our head that we they may ne- they may never go away, and to try and win that battle, to exorcise them, uh, to say to be happy, I need to get rid of this and become this sort of person is not just naive, uh, but it's probably impossible. Um, so it's learning to say, listen, I have these thoughts and feelings. Some of them make me, you know, want to crap my pants before. Some of them, I'm terrified that I'm going to be humiliated or embarrassed. Or I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm going to be discovered to be the fraud that I think I am. But how do I still go uh, uh, and attempt things or try things anyway with those feelings? And that really, that journey is what being brave is all about. It's interesting to me that you put the mattress at the bottom of the cliff because I thought the mattress is at the top. <laughs> before you even before you even <laughs> get to the point of jumping, you have to stand up and move to the edge of the cliff. And I see so, right, I suppose, I see so yeah, many that's... people getting stuck at that point. It doesn't matter if you're how big the mattress is at the bottom, right? If you're, you know, back in the RV in the parking lot and you're not even going to get out and look at the cliff. Well, I guess in, in this sense, the, the mattress, if we're really going to flog, flog, flog the, the metaphor. <laughs> right, right. Let's, let's beat this. To, let's beat it to death, please. The mattress is, is really um, a measure of, you know, how bad can the consequences be? And so, you know, it's, it is. It's like if we want to throw another metaphor in there. It's like, you know, uh, steps on a ladder, right? Is that, you know, you're in rung one and you're on the RV thinking I'm not going out there where the challenge is still at step eight or nine. So, yes, it's walking people up those rungs walking people down that path to the point where they can actually feel ready to jump. So the skills that we try and teach in our book really are kind of, okay, here's a, here's a rung one skill, here's a rung two skill. And when you're actually trying to manage the really kind of noxious stimuli, which is searing pain and, and, you're, and you're exercising or training or something like that, how do I deal with those? So they're more kind of rung nine skills. <laughs> but what about all the people? I mean, I see this a lot just out in the world and the people I deal with both with the dietary change and the endurance athlete side that are actually doing the thing, right? They're actually out there signing up for races. They're trying this or that dietary intervention or lifestyle intervention. They've taken those steps and they so 
deeply doubt themselves still, right? They st- so they're enacting the identity, but they haven't actually internalized the identity at all. Right. And so I think this is, this is a good, good way to talk about identity, right? What it actually is. Uh, because we know that look, identity as a sort of a way that we think about ourselves in a certain role or a certain capacity um, underlying that, the scaffolding of an identity is what psychologists call a self-schema. So you'll, you'll obviously be familiar with a self-schema. And, and only a psychologist could come up with the name self-schema. Like, oh, my God, can you make it any more <laughs> hard to understand? So a self-schema is simply just the thoughts and, and beliefs that you have about yourself in that capacity, right? So we all have lots of different uh, identities. You have one as an athlete or as a, as, a, as a partner, as an employee, as a parent. And we walk around, we go through life with all these wearing these different hats. And each of these identities feeds into what we call our self-concept. So this is the sort of the overall judgment of yourself as a person in a more, in a really global sense whether you like yourself as a person, whether you think of yourself as competent and so on. And, and all of these identities feed into that. And it's a lot like um, an investment portfolio, right? So if you've got all of your stocks, all of your money in, or investments in one stock, uh, like everything is wrapped up in one identity that feeds into self-concept and something happens to that identity, it's terminated prematurely through injury or something happens, then your self-concept, your whole sense of self gets a bit wobbly because there are so other there are so few other feeders into that. Um, so what we try and do, particularly with identity, is understand what are the aspects of your scheme, your athletic self-schema, or your, or your dietary change self-schema, your partner self-schema, that are causing some of the problems that you have. Like where are the gremlins located? And and you can, if you understand a little bit about just some of the basic research literature on what athletic identity, and not just even athletic identity, but identity generally is, you get a sense of, of, of where, to, where you start looking for the gremlins, where they might be. So, for example, if we talk about an, an athletic identity, or any identity is have, having a level of maturity. Now, the, the, the research, uh, actual, the, or the, the research psychologists who, who study identity, they talk about strong identity. But I, I never like the word strong, is because strong implies it's some sort of this linear process by you have the, the opposite of strong is weak. Uh, and then as you build up, more is better. So in other words, uh, that it, can you have an identity that's too strong? And so that never really works. So I liken it to to, to ripening fruit, right? So you've got an unripe or, or an immature identity. You've got a, a mature identity or, or a ripe piece of fruit. And then you've got an overripe or uh, identity or a piece of fruit. So it can be a bit rotten on the other side if it goes over the, over the other side. So when you look at what the contributing factors are, um, so for example, in, in sports and exercise, one of the features of an athletic identity is the fact that you actually participate. You actually, it doesn't mean that you race or you compete but you actually are active behaviorally you are active so it's very hard to find people there are some people that 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 struggle with athletic identity but they don't do any sport or exercise so it might be that the solution one of the strategies there is to start changing your behavior or likewise people who need to develop more of an active or athletic identity but they they come from they've got a history of being a couch potato one of the best strategies to start to to get that identity ball rolling is to start doing exercise and that will help another another feature of identity is at the extent to which you're comfortable calling yourself 
about that, an athlete. Oh, I'm an athlete, or I'm a triathlete, or I'm a runner. And you're comfortable being called that by other people. And, and some of the newer research in identity shows that there are private and public domains to our notion of how we think about ourselves. So we look for validation in the world outside of us that other people think of us that way too. It's not just us. Um, so again, you speak to some people and they say, oh, you know, tell us what you do. Well, are you an athlete? No, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an athlete. Well, it, right there, it tells you there's a little gremlin in their schema about how they think about themselves, right? And maybe underlying that, there might be some sense of imposterism, you know, these thoughts that we don't belong or that we're going to be discovered to be a fraud or, or so on. And, and, and so on. And so we can go through this little checklist, this audit of what it takes to have a mature identity. And then that helps us narrow in on, on perhaps where some of the gremlins might be lying for you. Yeah, it's funny. I think that I see people get stuck. You said something I really liked. I actually pulled it out that a mature athletic identity fuels confidence, grit, contentment, and a sense of healthy competitiveness. And I really love that because that's it completely in one sentence encapsulates what I think I would want for myself and for the people I talk to and train with and work with in terms of being an athlete. And I think that for me, what I see the biggest, the biggest hurdle I see people face is the confidence piece. It is this imposter syndrome piece, right? Where it's like, I know I'm doing the thing and maybe secretly I think of myself as an athlete, but I would never say that out loud, out loud because right. I mean, if, <laughs> right. if you go, cause what I don't want in any way is for you to go to ultra sign up and look at my actual performances right and see like oh she's in the 70th percentile again and again and again and again and here she is going around calling herself an athlete but the fact is that this person is doing all the training they've hired the coach they bought the shoes they registered for the race like on paper everything they're doing is the athlete part and it's almost and it's hard to disentangle whether it's a problem of self-confidence or is this like an impression management strategy and kind of a self-protective right, right. strategy that they're doing, right? Well, it might be a bit of all of those things. But what, one thing we do know is that your athletic identity or a mature, certainly someone who has a mature athletic identity, it can be completely independent of how fast you are or how much training you do, right? Obviously, you to be an to have an athletic, strong athletic identity or mature identity, we want you to participate. But it really doesn't matter how fast or slow you are. So this is back to one of the sort of another hallmark of having a mature identity is acceptance of your own ability. And it doesn't mean that it's you're putting a fixed limit to that you're never going to be this, you know that. But where you're at at the moment, your current fitness and your current ability, you there's some you have some ownership over that. And so that this means that you're neither embarrassed by it or that you need to prove it. And so um, we know we know the the people who are embarrassed by it. We we often see it in in athletes. It's a case of the justers. Oh, I'm just an age group athlete, or I'm just one of those slow people at the back, or I'm just a. You're sort of kind of excusing your athleticism off the bat, or or the opposite. The people are always telling you how awesome they are. They're listing their results and constantly. So both those things are little red flags that there are gremlins there in how you think about yourself as an athlete. And that and that I think that follows on from the self-criticism or the self-aggrandizement, you know, telling people how awesome you are all the time or you're talking about your ability and the performance. So confidence certainly does play a a role in that. And this is all part of the same system, which is our self-judgment system. I'd like to, let's talk a little bit more about this acceptance piece because this is something, I'm going to just try to low-key make this whole interview about me and the things that I care about for myself and think about as an athlete. So this is, so here we go. So, okay, here we go. So, um, you know, there's this, question of acceptance and saying, okay, you know, here are my current abilities. Here's realistically like what I'm likely to achieve, right? And taking into all these 
you know, all the factors, you know, my other things I have going on in my life, my willingness to devote X number of hours to training and, you know, no more and my past results and what they say about my likely future results and all that. Right. But at the same time, theoretically, as an athlete, you're kind of always striving for improvement on some level, right? At least fitness improvements, you know, there's a big component of, you know, wanting to go faster, wanting to go faster for a lot of people, which I actually don't personally identify with. But, um, you know, how do you know as an athlete, this is a hard question, maybe, how do you know as an athlete when you have reached a level of healthy acceptance versus where you're kind of tipping over into a place of self-handicapping or, you know, again, protecting your self-concept. So I've reached a point where I'm willing to work as hard as I am going to work now. And any harder would maybe be uncomfortable or scary or maybe just logistically not realistic. And that's a kind of a different consideration. Like, how do you know when acceptance is healthy versus acceptance is holding yourself back? Right. So this is this ties into uh, one of the questions, actually, I think Chris asked me on the on his NBT podcast was about a competitor versus a participant mindset, right? And um, so this segues nicely into some of that discussion. I think one way to think about it is that you give yourself a little sort of identity audit, right? And um, an identity audit is simply, you know, there, if there are uh, six or seven things that we know um, typify a mature identity, and you can insert athletic, and you can insert, you know, partner or whatever you, you the role that you want to talk about there. And you say, well, okay, do I, am I comfortable calling myself an athlete? Uh, am I comfortable other people calling myself? Do I own my own athletic ability? Do I ever excuse it? Do I, what kinds of things do I, do I post on Facebook to kind of beef up my ability or do I, or to, or to break it down? Or uh, am I self, am I overly self-critical with myself? Do I have a healthy balance between this activity or this role and other roles in my life? Um, and so on. Are, are my emotional reactions considered sort of reasonable by most people when shit goes wrong, you know, in my, in my sport or endeavors? And so by, by going through this little checklist, you can say, well, yeah, that's me that, oh no, I'm, I'm kind of not very good at that. So it's telling you how, uh, you know, how you can improve. And certainly, you know, one of the the last things we want to do is think of mature identity as, as being this sort of categorical status. You either are in this box or you're not. It's a continuum, right? So the, the goal of self-improvement is always to say, well, how, what, which of these things can I work on or which ones do I know that are are mostly or are likely to be a problem for me. And so the one that you bring up there, which is actually remarkably common among endurance athletes as well, is the fact that they get it. And this is how it presents itself is that, you know, I just kind of, I just kind of throw the towel in during a, an event or a race. So I start off thinking, oh, you know, I just want to finish and enjoy it. And I want to have some gratitude. And listen, these are all fantastic goals for any participation, right? But it's when they're, then they're, they're being a little bit disingenuous about their goals. If someone is con- with a hand on the heart, say, you know, I genuinely love the feeling that this activity gives me. And I couldn't care whether I come first or last. I'd like to do better. I want to improve. But that really doesn't define how I enjoy this. Um, now, if you can say that, then I would say, listen, let's, let's, you don't need to go any further. Don't stop digging to trying to find things to sort of work on. This is the, you know, what we might want to get to. But other people who say that and say, you know what, I kind of have been using that as a bit of a crutch that when things get hard or it gets competitive and I might get a bit of anxiety, I want to do well. My strategy is to default to, oh, as long as you enjoy it, as long as you just kind of look around, have some gratitude, everything's good. But secretly, you're unhappy with yourself. 
because you want to be able to be a bit more competitive or you want to improve or you want to sort of have that sort of head to head, win that head to head fight. That doesn't mean that that's appropriate for everybody. But it's the, the question begins about whether you are you using that sort of sense of in the moment joy, gratitude as a smokescreen to kind of explain away why you don't actually perform as to the best of your potential, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'm a big fan of just kind of this general like woo-woo, like self-improvement, always strive for better, you know, like, (laughs) but what about, you know, there's, the reality is that for most of the people out there on the course, they're going to be, I mean, obviously statistically, 75% of them are going to be like in the bottom three quarters of the back, right? So like, so these people are not, so most of the people out there are not winners in that sense, right? They're not podium contenders. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... For them, having a competitive mindset means something different, right? right? So either you have to be competing against your peer group, your training group, or competing against yourself. Right. And to me, I feel like that's maybe a little bit of a harder balance in terms of if you're competing for a podium spot, kind of your who you're competing against and why and how and for what are very clearly delineated, Right. But if you're just kind of, you know, someone who's consistently, you know, coming in around the midway point of the of the pack and that's fine. Right. But you're feeling really competitive. I just wonder if that's in some way qualitatively different and maybe a little bit harder to balance in a way that can be done in a way that's healthy. Or am I just is that not the case? Is it pretty much the same, just framed differently? No. Yeah. What's interesting is that when you speak to athletes who a podium or a placing is not just really important, you know, sort of socially and emotionally, but it's financially important too, right? They're, they're literally, their jobs are to, they're, pay, they're paying their mortgage based on their, their results. And so, but what you find when you talk to these people, these sorts of athletes, is that their, their mindset of competitiveness is, is, is very similar to the person who has a competitive mindset who's at the, the feathery end of the arrow, not the sharp end right. of the arrow, right? <laughs> And, and the reason is that the, the, the determinants of outcome, the process of how you get good outcomes is the same for both, both athletes, right? So the mindset that it takes to push yourself to get on the podium is the same mindset that it takes to get the best out of you on the day because one is a determinant of the other. And so what we often recommend is that shifting to this process focus in sport. So listen, the, lo- the paradox of outcome is that the, the way to get the best outcome possible is to not focus on the outcome, is to focus on the things that create good outcomes. And in sport, it's the things that you can control in the moment. You can't control weather. You can't control who shows up on the day. You can't even control to a certain extent, the little weird sensations you get on race morning that, Oh my God, that little tweak is back. Or I didn't know what about, you know, was that a dodgy <laughs> prawn I ate the night before? Or I shouldn't have had <laughs> gas station sushi is never going to be. Yeah. Dodgy prawns. Yeah. Um, so, so your cards that you've been dealt with on the, on, on, on race morning are what they are. Um, but there's no, and, but the, the, the professional athlete who's standing on the front line, the way that they get the outcome they want is this exactly the same thing as the person who's right at the back and is trying to just squeeze as much out of themselves and their potential on the day. And this comes back to two basic principles is that the two things that you can control are your effort and your attitude. And your effort 
which is the ultimate in process focus. That could be in terms of exertion, like physically how hard are you pushing? It can be technique. It can be tactics. It can be am I being, it translates into am I being the best athlete I can be with the cards that I've been dealt on the morning uh, that I can be in this moment. And, and the professional, Olympic, whatever athlete, it has exactly the same focus as, as that person who is at the other end, but they're still trying to get the same goal. And so really focusing on, on outcomes that I need to get that podium, I must come in the top three. If you, want, if you want one way to not get that, that's what you do. You focus on what you need to accomplish instead of breaking it down into things that are going to make you the best athlete you can be. So effort and attitude. And we spend quite a lot of time unpacking those concepts and giving athletes strategies for how to actually do that in, in the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important because when you think about having a competitive mindset, to me, what that conjures up is the idea of actively, you know, picking a target. I'm going to be faster than you. I'm going to be faster than this. But what you're saying is, no, that's an outcome focus, of course, obviously. Flip it on its head. Start worrying about the the process. You know, take more of maybe a growth mindset, right? So what am I doing here? What are the things that I have trained for? What are the things I've been acting? And really turn internally instead of externally, right? So what are the things that I can do myself as an individual on this course? What have I brought to the table? Not what is everyone else bringing to the table? Who else is right. out here? How fast is, you know, whatever, Sarah or someone over there? That's a really hard thing, though, right? It, it is. It's really hard. But when you, it's a skill, right? Um, so when you ask athletes at the end of a race, you say, are you happy with your race? And the, the, their answer of yes or no is largely irrelevant. It's why they come to that conclusion. And so athletes and, and experience tells me that, that when you ask it, the, the, the things that cause when you do the post race autopsy, you know, and the thing that most athletes agonize over or haunts them is not that they miss the third, getting third by three seconds. It's the things that they did during the race that they felt that they weren't being honoring that pledge of effort and attitude to themselves that I knew when I backed off a bit or when she went and I thought, do I go with her or not? And I, I made that decision at the time based on these factors. And I'm pissed at myself for that. Or I come back and I thought that I could have given more. And I didn't, if I'm honest with myself, I didn't really squeeze the sponge. So I crossed the line, you know, collapsing. So how do I, that's what, gets people really sort of um, gives people sort of frustration and an annoyance about how they've done. And so you can ask that of anybody, someone who's doing the Turkey trot 5k versus an Olympic trials qualifier. It's the same question. So I, I couldn't, and we want the, you know, the, the, the Willy Wonka's golden ticket here when you finish this is, you know what? I couldn't have done any more. I did. I laid everything out there and if it wasn't enough, it wasn't enough, but I know that I couldn't have done any more. And so if you can get to the point where that you can be honest with yourself and, and say that and answer that question that I couldn't have done more, that is what we're trying to get to in, in athletic performance, whether you're a newbie or whether you're a professional, I couldn't have given more. But the things that we do, the participant versus, you know, the, the fake participant mindset versus the competitive mindset are little clues that you probably could have done more. So one, one example of this is that people engage, you know, the, I, I should probably come up with a little phrase for, for the, you know, the fake participant mindset, the people who like pretend that's the way, oh, it's so good, I was just doing it for fun, but they're secretly annoyed with themselves, is, um, 
is that there's a fear that if I give everything, if I lay everything on the line, meaning effort and attitude, check, check those boxes, and it still wasn't enough. What does that say about me? It says that you're a failure, that you cannot do it. You're not good enough. And so many people, that if that's the way that you are, uh, interpret it, many people, they, they just, they go into sort of ego protection mode, right? And they thought, listen, any conclusion is better than knowing that, you know, when every, all the excuses are stripped away and the explanations or the attributions, as psychologists call them, are stripped away. And the cold, plain, hard truth is that you just are not good enough. I don't want to face that reality in the face, right? Uh, and this is the hallmark of this fixed mindset, is that I'd rather say, well, oh, you know, it's just a training run, or I just, you know, I just want to enjoy it. And so you come up with all these examples that you can't criticize on the out, on the, on, on the outside, because they are all seeming genuine, genuine reasons. But only the person, only the athlete can be actually honest with themselves and say, you know what, uh, I didn't. And these are the reasons why. And so it's incredibly liberating if you can get into a position and lay everything on the line and see what happens and literally say, I couldn't have done any more. And, un, you know, uh, 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 and uh, no surprise that the world still turns and no one actually gives much of a shit about you and your race because they're so thinking about their own stuff. And, you know, that mattress at the bottom of the, uh, of the cliff is, has caught you. And uh, yes, you might be a bit frustrated and want to do better. But if you couldn't have given any more, then you, you then go into the process of thinking about your training, right? Like, so what can I do so that I, I do have more speed in the last mile or what do I do and blah, 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 blah. So, but that process focus and giving yourself, being honest with yourself at the end of a, of an event and saying, I, I gave everything I had. I tried to keep my attitude as positive as possible throughout it. You know, I can't ask any more of myself. And that's the same that you would say as a parent, right? To their kid. That's what you want. Give it your all. Don't come back with the reasons why you didn't give it your all. Give it your all and don't be afraid to fall on your ass. Right. But part of what this makes me think about, you know, the people who come back to you in the post-race autopsy and feel like no matter what they did, it still wasn't enough, right? Is that sometimes that can be because they truly did not execute. And sometimes that can be kind of an ego protection strategy. And sometimes that can be because what they think they can do is just wrong, right? (laughs) That their expectations going into the race are just not realistic, Right. And so how do you it's an interesting thing to try to build up athletes self-confidence and to develop this identity and also have kind of a realistic goal setting strategy. Right. So you want to there's this kind of there's an element, I think, here and maybe this kind of gets back to that self-help rah-rah of, you know, of feeling self-confident, you know, maybe, you know, pounding your chest a little bit. Right. Doing your power breathing or whatever before you hit the start line. But then also kind of knowing where you're real strengths and limitations are as an athlete? Yeah. I mean, you know, of course, if you ask an athlete what their goal is for a 10K and they say, I'd like to, I'd like to get on the podium, I'd like to win my age group, I'd like to run, you know, under 40 minutes. And then you ask them about, you know, what, 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 <laughs> right. what evidence do they have to say this is possible. <laughs> and, and we've, we've got an athlete. Uh, and they're like, oh, my friend can do it. Yeah, like, yeah, well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So sometimes, you know, the, one of the ways that we recalibrate our 
goals is that we through through experience right so you do something for the first time you've no idea what to expect and you say well you know uh, uh my friend muriel does it in this time so i figured that we're kind of similar so that's my t- goal and then you get out there thinking holy show did i get that wrong and so that you recalibrate so <laughs> if there's if there's not much recalibrating the, the feedback loop for helping inform what your goals whether they are realistic but still challenging if there's something wonky in that system then that becomes a different problem right that you're trying to how that you manage expectation but assuming that most people have a realistic expectation they might do they might deliberately set goals that are too easy and this is one of those self-sabotaging strategies right that they're so easy to meet so how do we find the optimal goal that's just challenging enough to keep us motivated but it's scary enough to, to, to sort of, you know, it's that I'm running, away, I, 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 want, I want to save face as much as I want to, uh, you know, achieve this. So that's the, that's the, the uh, I guess, the fine line that you're trying to, to, trying to tread. But yeah, find, getting a balance between what people have as expectations and what they think their capacity for is, is the challenge. And, and often many of us are terrible at being able to judge our own abilities, because if in in the absence of experience, we draw on other people, we draw on all a, a whole host of other things that what we think identify that, you know, you're not a serious athlete until you've done this. And, you know, I'll take triathlon, which is the, one of the worlds I'm in, is that in North America, if you unless you're an Ironman athlete, you're not a real triathlete. Right. So it, it's encouraged a whole host of athletes who like Olympic distance or half Ironman distances to to pursue Ironman training and do an Ironman. They, they don't really want to or like to, but that's the way that they think you get validated as a triathlete. And that's completely different in Europe. But so in terms of the distances, so, so these, all of these things uh, feed into how you start to unpack where or find out where the gremlins are in terms of making this experience enjoyable and that you're honest with yourself that I can say I gave it everything and it is what it is. Thinking about the self-sabotage piece, I think one of the things that, you know, at, when I talk to our primal endurance community, that is kind of a struggle in terms of our own personal philosophy is that the philosophy we bring to the table is, you know, be coached by your 80 year old self, be intuitive, listen to your body, right? Um, Create a healthy stress rest balance. And so I think what that sounds like to people who come from this kind of uber competitive traditional training model is give yourself a bunch of excuses not to do stuff. (laughs) <laughs> right? Right. So, well, would my 80-year-old self probably rather sit on the couch or maybe just go for a nice little walk or would my 80-year-old self really want to get in this freezing pool at five in the morning? Right. Right? And it's just, it's hard, I think, for athletes, even with the best of intentions, to understand or to diagnose maybe where they are doing a healthy amount of listening to their bodies, a healthy amount of finding balance in their lives, especially for those of us who aren't, you know, uber competitive, you know, our, our livelihoods do not depend on our outcomes, but also not self-sabotaging. I think most of us do not want to self-sabotage, right? And there's always this voice in my head where if it's, you know, oh, I know that I do have this twinge in my knee and on the one hand, I've got the angel on my shoulder going, this is an appropriate day for rest. And then the other hand's going, you're just saying that right. because it's raining and blah, blah, blah. Right. And it's, I mean, yeah. how do you, I'm going to ask the expert, like, how do you diagnose well, that? Yeah. So, so one of the, one of the, again, it's, this is the paradox of self-help, right? Is that you're trying to fix the problem with the problem, which is the brain, your right. own brain. Right. <laughs> and so 
one of one one of the things which is why experts are great in other people's helping other people, but they're terrible helping themselves with their own skills, right? So that's that's a universal thing. It's not it's not just uh, just you know in this context, but yeah. So I think that one of the things is when we when we outsource advice or help or insight to other people or to books or to other things that aren't just swimming around in our own head. It serves a one, well, there's a couple of functions that it serves. One is that it, it tries to get us to be a little bit more reflective about our own cognitive biases. And our brains, as you know all too well, our brains are wired to play tricks on us and not in a malicious way, but in a way to ultimately they're there to help us be more efficient. So we don't have to do all of the the, the cognitive heavy lifting to determine whether I like someone or not. Uh, but I'm going to take a lot of shortcuts. I'm going to make a few judgments based on what I know about them, how they are, and so on. And I'm going to come up with a little heuristic, as psychologists say, to say, okay, this is my conclusion about that. And so, you know, there's 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 now the psychologists have identified hundreds of these little cognitive biases that that trick our own heads, and and some of them are so good that we don't know we're doing them even. And one of those is confirmation bias, and we see this play out politically. We see this play out in sport. We in, in virtually every domain. And confirmation bias is simply that once we have an opinion or idea about something, we when faced with information, we we play we place much greater emphasis on the things that supports my opinion, and we discount things that disagree with it. Um, and so we, 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 we tune out things that might be telling us, well, you know, have you, is this actually what's going on? Or, oh, no, no, this is right. You know, it's the echo chamber uh, in, in we know now. So, so sometimes we can't rely on our own heads to get us out of this problem. And so when we talk about, you know, um, our relationship to competition, for example, and, you know, in, 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 in identity psychology or psychologists who work with identity, one of these concepts is called identity foreclosure. And identity foreclosure is when your identity is growing about a particular area of your life, a domain. And for most of us, this happens, you know, in, in our teenage years, in our young adulthood, when we pick up new things as well, uh, it can happen in later life. But uh, but when something prematurely terminates that and tells us this is how you think and feel about it, you kind of stop developing that full identity. And you know, if you if you've grown up in a very sort of uh, conservative household, and the things about rules of life become fixed, and you don't really question them, uh, is an example of identity foreclosure. In sport, we see this all the time. My sister's a great example of this. At like fifteen, she hated. PE. She hated sports. She never owned a pair of sneakers. And she decided that I'm not the sporty type, right? I'm just not, I'm just not a competitive. That's not who I am. And spent her entire adult life really thinking, well, that's not, look at those there. That's not who I am. And then as she gradually sort of tried to unpack and revisit that identity as, as an athletic, which was, uh, had been stunted at age 15, she found that she actually loved exercise and she started competing. And it was a whole new world that she had this fixed mindset in Carol Dweck's terms right about my ability intelligence talent talent or attribute is is a fixed quality at birth and 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 i you know there's nothing i'm just not that to, i just i'm just not very good with foreign languages right right these fixed mindset beliefs we have and so i i suspect that many of us this isn't true of necessarily of your audience, but this is true of most of us that there are things in our life that we have that approach. And it might be that the, I'm going to, I'm kind of like to stay active and healthy, but I'm just not that, I'm just not that sort of obsessive, competitive person. Well, there's fixed mindset thinking in that as well, because competition can take many forms, not and, and many of those forms can be really enjoyable, even if you you are kind of kicking and screaming against it. 
your initial gut reaction is that you're kicking and screaming against it. So it would, I, I, I says, I guess my my sort of take home message from this would be, you know, what about like learning the the, the if the, a little litmus test is the more that the, the the stronger the guttural visceral reaction against something is, the more you should sort of unpack that or try and figure out what's what's causing that. Versus, oh, I'm kind of indifferent to competition. Yeah, I don't mind. I don't really care. It's like you know, it's like ice cream or whatever it is for you that I don't. I could take it or leave it. But if if you find oh that's not me, I don't want to do that. That's not then I I, sus, I suspect there's more of a gremlin there than just a genuine uh, a, a schematic as a psychologist would call or a genuine indifference. Well, Simon, I was going to ask you to end with a word of wisdom, something that you would tell everybody, and then you just did it so organically (laughs) that I honestly don't think we could do better than that. Unless you have something else you've been dying to tell us. That was an absolutely beautiful ending point for us. I really appreciate it. No, I, I mean, I think, well, thank That's very kind of you. I don't, uh, I didn't mean it to sound uh, uh, a little button uh, and, you know, a little uh, period on that, on that sentence. But uh, yeah, I think that one, one of the, the greatest things that we can all do in this, in, in this striving to have fewer thoughts and feelings that we want, to have more enjoyment out of life, to get more happiness, is to take the time to kind of look inside the black box a little bit. And even if you have a fixed mindset against self-help, <laughs> <laughs> and the stronger you kick and scream against self-help tells us that the fixed mindset is force is strong with you, uh, that alone is worth exploring. That is great. I'm going to just end it right there because I think that is a wonderful way to end. I would love to talk to you again sometime. We barely scratched the surface of all the amazing tips and tricks and tools and nuggets. And there was almost no swearing in this episode compared to the book, which I've, I know. Oh, bummer. I've, I've got a, I've got a filter. I didn't know, <laughs> you know, some, there, there are some audience swearing is context is important, right? So uh, swear, swearing, I don't want to offend vast swathes of your audience. Well, I appreciate it. Although I don't think you would have offended my audience. So, <laughs> well, thank <laughs> for that. Thank you so much, Simon, for taking the time today. My pleasure, Lindsay. Lovely to talk to you. Hi, Brad Kearns here with something different than a stiff commercial script message. I want to give you an authentic endorsement for one of my favorite supplements of all time. It's called Adaptogenic Calm. used to be called Primal Calm, and the key ingredient in this formula is called Phosphatidylserine, or PS. And this agent has been shown in hundreds of studies to blunt the catabolic effects of the stress hormone cortisol in the bloodstream that's released in response to all forms of life stress, whether it's a series of difficult workouts, extensive jet travel, personal stress of any kind. We're constantly triggering the fight-or-flight mode in modern life. And when people say, hey, you should take a chill pill, this really is a chill pill. Because when you consume an appropriate amount of phosphatidylserine and the other supportive ingredients that have been known to have a calming effect on the central nervous system, things like magnesium, L-theanine, magnolia bark, and rhodiola, you will get a calming effect. It's not like a stimulant product that makes you feel more energy and have a better workout but instead this sort of takes the edge off of that stress buzz where you feel that foggy brain function maybe a little shaky and finally fried at the end of a busy stressful day this stuff will help you clear your bloodstream from those catabolic stress hormones before they can do the damage so i like to take significant quantities of it in and around stressful events such as jet travel or 
in those heavy training cycles when you're really pushing your body and trying so hard not to fall into that overtraining, overstress, foggy brain function spiral downward. That's right, phosphatidylserine has also been shown to enhance cognitive function. It's commonly used in Europe on cognitive decline patients. And you can make that connection between when you're frazzled and overstressed and how your brain doesn't work quite as well. So this is a brain function enhancing, stress hormone reducing, secret weapon, adaptogenic calm. Look for it on primalblueprint.com.